I invite you to take your Bibles now, or to reach for one under the pew in front of you, or if you'd rather just listen, that's okay too. But we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 again, and we will take verse 4 today, which is the next verse in order from this series that we're in. And I have had such a great time in Hebrews that I just sense the Lord doesn't want me to quit in the book of Hebrews yet anyway. So I gave to Greg uh, two more sermons for when I get back on into chapter 2. And we'll just see how long this series should keep going. But as long as the Lord keeps uh, firing me up to love what is said here, I will assume that that's his word for you too. What we'll do is we'll read verses 1 to 4 and then we'll unpack the remainder of the chapter along with it because all of chapter 1 verses 5 to 14 is exposition of verse 4. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, I ask that you would help me now to unfold these truths in a way that will hit home and that you by your Spirit would open hearts and minds and that we would see Christ. Christ, would you stand forth from your word and reveal your glory In these words, I pray. In your name, I ask it. Amen. Thinking about angels had evidently become really skewed in the churches to whom this book is written. Something's gone haywire in the way they think about angels. Otherwise, I cannot account for why verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, on into chapter 2, up through verse 16, again in chapter 12, again in chapter 13, the issue of angels is on the front burner. What is the big deal with angels? So something is askew in the churches here about angels, and especially how they relate to Jesus. So I want us to ask right now, how's our thinking about angels? Are you sure you've got it right about angels? (laughs) Who are they? How do they relate to Jesus Christ? And if you're not completely sure that you got angels in their right spot in your brain and in the universe, tune in now and let's listen in as to what this writer has to tell these people about angels. There's a lot of really relevant material here. It's relevant because it lifts up Jesus in an extraordinary way for our worship and for our trust. It's relevant because it shows the ministry of angels today to Christians, 20th, 
century technological America. And it's relevant because, as we'll see in two weeks, the whole point of chapter 1 is to cause us to take heed to the Word of God spoken by the Son, lest we begin to drift away from it. This is chapter 2. Drifting is so dangerous. The name of my message in two weeks is going to be called The Danger of Drifting. Sometimes we think the real danger in the Christian life is frontal assaults from sin. It's not the real danger. The real danger is drifting. But we'll talk about that in two weeks. Let's go to verse 3 and pick up where we left off last week. You remember on Easter Sunday we... We zeroed in on the words, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That's an enthronement situation. He gave his life to make purification for sins. In giving his life, according to chapter 2, verse 14, he conquered Satan, he conquered death, he conquered hell. And God therefore raised him triumphant and sat him down on the throne of majesty at his right hand. Now, verse 4 says, He did that, having become as much better than angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, the main point there is real clear. Jesus Christ is better than angels. He is better than angels. How better and how much better is what verses 5 through 14 are all about. How is he better? How much better is he? How should we think about his relationship to angels? Now verse 4 answers that question in a comparison. It says, He is as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, what's that? What's the name? Let me answer that question by just going a little bit roundabout here. Back in the Old Testament, when a king was enthroned, and they had a great ceremony of acclamation and enthronement, One of the ways they did it is that God, probably through a prophet, said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's one of the words that was pronounced over the king. We see that in Psalm 2. We see it in Psalm 88 and a few other places where this, You are my firstborn above all the kings of the earth. We're firstborn being a kingly designation in an enthronement ceremony. Now that's what we have in verse 3, is Christ now taking the throne of his father David, only much more than that, taking the throne of God. And therefore, verse 5 picks up that theme from Psalm 2 and says, after he has said he's greater than the angels and his name is greater, it says, for... To which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. 
And then again, and he quotes from 2 Samuel 7.14, which is another enthronement ceremony for Solomon. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So if you ask me, what's the name in verse 4 that is so superior to angels? The answer is, son of God. You see the logic there between verse 4 and 5? He has a name above them for to which angels did he ever say, you are my son. Now let me compare this with something Paul wrote in Romans 1. In Romans 1, 4, Paul wrote, Christ was declared son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. Christ was declared Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. Now, Christ was always the Son of God, but when he was crucified, he triumphed like a warrior king over sin. He triumphed like a warrior king over death. He triumphed like a warrior king over Satan. And when he was raised, the Father acclaimed him You are my son, my warrior son, my triumphant son, my sin-defeating son, my Satan-crushing son, my hell-overcoming son. Take your seat at the right hand of majesty. So that's what's going on here from verse 3, 4, and 5. You have God acclaiming the son, not because he's always been the son, which he has been, but because now he is victor son, sin-defeating son, Satan-crushing son, victorious over death son. And he is seating as the, he's seated as the God-man with the triumph of his crucifixion and his resurrection in the marks of his own body. And so I think his superiority to angels here is being stressed in the designation son of God in an enthronement Ceremony in heaven. Now the point of verse 5 is, God never said that to an angel. God never said to an angel, you are my son, today I have enthroned you, begotten you, installed you as victor king. So he's separating Christ from the angels and saying, Christ is unique. He is not an angel. He never said to an angel what he said to the son. See now how a big gulf is being created here between Christ and the angels. Now you want to see the infiniteness of that gulf? Let's read on to verse 6. And when he, that is God, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let The angels of God worship him. Now, I think that's a reference to the second coming. The word order there is different in your different versions, but I think it's right in the NASB when it says, and when he again brings him, not when again he says, but rather when he again brings him, that is, he brought him into the world at the incarnation, Christ is going to be brought into the world again, as it says over in Hebrews 9.27. And when he does, all the angels of the universe are going to be worshiping him as he comes. 
Now stop and think about this for a moment because this is huge. What this verse says is, Jesus is not an angel, he is worshipped by angels. Jesus is not an angel, he is worshipped by angels. Angels worship him. Now this is important. I want to linger over this for a minute to test whether we are a Christian church or not. Are we a Christian church? What separates Christians from Muslims, Jews, the Caesar cult in the first centuries, Jehovah's Witnesses today? What separates us? One thing mainly, we worship Jesus. Muslims don't worship Jesus, he's just a prophet. Jews don't worship Jesus, he was a deluded Jewish teacher. The Caesar cult demanded worship for Caesar and Christians burned for it and went to the lions because they would only worship Jesus. And Jehovah's Witnesses called Jesus Michael. He is the archangel in the flesh. They are not Christians. And they belittle Jesus Christ. Are we a Christian church? That's the question. And the answer to that question is, when we gather in this room right now, are we here to bow down with the angels of heaven and worship Jesus Christ? Do you worship Jesus? Are you a Christian? If you don't worship Jesus, you're not a Christian. Christians worship Jesus Christ. This is a huge watershed in the world. It is a huge Dividing line in world religions. Only one world religion worships Jesus. Christianity. The cults don't worship him. They try to give him a place of honor, just like they give Gabriel, Michael, a place of honor. But he is not to be worshipped, for that would be idolatry. Test yourself. Do you worship Jesus? Do you love Jesus like that? Now, this is scary language because lingering, lurking, lurking right behind it is a huge question. Wait a minute. I thought you're supposed to worship God and God only. And therefore, this writer knows exactly what he said. He knows exactly the danger of this language. And he moves ahead to say the unspeakable thing. So let's read it in verses 7 through 9. Namely, Jesus is God. First, he contrasts them with angels. He says, and of the angels, he says, that is, God says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute when we talk in verse 14 about the ministry of angels. His angels are like winds. His angels are like flames of fire in the world. But, now, contrast the, what he says about the sun. But of the sun, he says, now he quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Of the sun, he says, thy throne, O God. There it is. Circle that. 
If it's not there in your version, it's probably in a footnote. And it ought to be in the text because this is the right rendering. The efforts both in the psalm translation and this translation to blunt the ascription of divinity and deity to Jesus is misguided. It is here. That's the drift of this whole chapter is to move the Son out of the category of angels, up onto the throne of God, get worship for Him, and now to call Him God. That's what verse 8 is doing. But of the Son, He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, now here comes the mystery. Therefore, God, thy God, hmm, hmm, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Now I went back, just to be real careful, to read in the Hebrew, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, to see if this is a rendering. And I read a commentary on this to see how commentaries handle this psalm. And it is remarkable what is in this psalm. It is staggering the words that are in this psalm. They are faithfully rendered here in the New American Standard Bible. What that psalm says in verses 6 and 7, here it's verses 8 and 9, is something that must have caused the early readers to scratch their head. It caused this writer to stop and say... This text will do it. This text will do it. Because what he found was that in verse 8, God, or the people, or the psalmist, is addressing the king, thy throne, O God. Addressing the king as God. But in the next verse, he's saying, God is thy God. This is exactly like Psalm 110, which Jesus used over and over again when it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus said, who's the Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, King David calling the Messiah his Lord. And Jesus pulled on those words with all his might to say, is the Messiah only like David or is he like a Lord of David? It's exactly the same thing going on in this psalm here. You have thy throne, O God, and then thy God. So you have a being who is God and who has a God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the origin of theology. That's the origin of Trinity. The only reason theologians come up and scratch their heads with words like Trinity, which are not in the Bible, is because the reality is in the Bible. Jesus is God, according to verse 8 of Hebrews 1. He's God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's why we worship Him. Now, I want you to test yourself here. Do you worship Jesus as God? Do you love Him as God? Do you have a relationship with Him as God? As you go to work in the morning, do you communicate with Jesus as God? Is He at your right hand, a real living person as God? Or is He just kind of a vague idea? 
or is he your God? This writer here now goes all the way to stress that Jesus, God, is creator. And so in verses 10 to 12, he quotes words that in Psalm 102 are ascribed to God. And the reason he does that is because he's now just established in verses 8 to 9 that Jesus is God. The Son of God is God. So let's read what he says about him here in verse 10. And he says about the Son, Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up as a garment. They will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. Now what he's doing in those verses is drawing out what he's already said in verse 2. Remember? Through the Son, the world was created, it said in verse 2. Now he goes all the way and doesn't just say, through the Son the world was created. He says, thou established the earth. Thou hast established the works of thy hands. Because he is willing to say, God created the universe. I have just shown that the Messiah, the Son of God, is God. And therefore, I will ascribe to the Son what I ascribe to the Creator. He made the heavens and he made the earth. I was reading in one book on the Christology of the New Testament and it says, after the Gospel of John, the writer of Hebrews has the most exalted view of the Son of God in all the New Testament. The vision of Jesus as the divine Son of God, as God, is clearer in the book of Hebrews than in any other book of the New Testament except for the writings of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's even clearer. But it's hard to be clearer than verse 8 in my judgment. So he is establishing here that he is not an angel. Now let me just linger here for a minute and apply this to you. Do you have an appropriate sense of reverence and awe and wonder at Jesus Christ? Is he little or is he big to you? Do you belittle him through neglecting him? Or despising him? Or most commonly, no, I suppose neglecting is most commonly, but second most commonly, trivializing him? For example, when you hear a comedian like Bill Cosby get everybody laughing, like I did this week, by saying, my brother thought his name was Dammit. And I thought my name was Jesus Christ. Because my dad always says, Dammit, come here. And Jesus Christ, where are you guys? Do you get drawn in to that funny, well, the kind of funny that undoes the universe? that destroys everything. The trivialization of what is holy and what is horrible. Damn it. And Jesus Christ. The trivialization of the horrible and the holy. 
destroys the universe, destroys families, destroys churches, destroys souls. And we just get drawn in. The music of the world, the humor of the world, and pretty soon our Jesus is about that tall. He's just Jesus Christ, not the creator of the universe. Not the upholder of the universe. Not the one who makes purification for sins. Not the one who sits at the right hand of majesty. Not God Almighty, who's coming again one day and the angels will fall down and worship Him. You know, this chapter is written to create a passion. A passion for the supremacy of God the Son. Do you have it? Do you have it? Or when you read the Bible, do you just flip over pages and head off and love what the world loves and show up on Sunday and do a religious thing and then go off and love what the world loves again and Jesus in your affection remains a millimeter high. And there is no trembling, there's no reverence, there's no awe, there's no reveling in His divine glory and His power to uphold the universe. Oh, that God would awaken our hearts this morning. It's real easy to see what this chapter is designed to do, isn't it? I mean, this chapter is plain. Jesus is not an angel. He is the Son of God. He's not an angel. He is to be worshipped. He's not an angel. He is creator. He's not an angel. One last contrast. Let's look at it. Verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So we're back to verse 3 in the enthronement. He's never said to an angel, Sit at my right hand until I subdue all your enemies under your feet. And then he contrasts in verse 14. Well, who are the angels then? If he never said that to an angel, what does he say to angels? Here's what he says. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What's the contrast here? Jesus sitting like a king upon the throne... Angels sent to do his bidding in the world. There's the difference. Jesus, King Jesus, on the throne, sovereign, serene. Angels, millions of them, sent, doing his bidding, blessing his people. You, you, the target of all the ministrations of the angels, the worshiping angels of heaven, dispatched by King Jesus into the world to minister. There's only one King Jesus, there are many angels. There's one King and ruler over the body, there are many ministers from heaven to the body called angels. But how do they serve? How do they serve? I ask myself, what is this service in verse 14? They come to serve you, Christians. You believe there are angels in this room right now? I wonder if you'd be different if one of them materialized beside me up here. I do not doubt that one is here and one is here. Look at that. Put my hand. 
I would not be here. I know the forces arrayed against me. Some visit this, this sanctuary and they restrain you. They restrain you. You cannot do and you do not succeed what you come to do. Isn't that amazing? That we meet every Sunday? That this building exists? That I'm alive after 16 years? You think angels don't exist? But what do they do? Look at the connection between verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, Jesus is now in heaven, seated upon a throne. But something's happening in verse 13, isn't it? Something's happening. What's happening? Enemies of Jesus are being subdued. What are the enemies of Jesus? Demons, false ideas, my sinful bent and flesh, evil people in the world that are under the sway of the evil one. All those are enemies. And unless they repent, they're coming under the feet of Jesus. They're going to be a footstool for his feet forever. So there's a process of subduing going on in the world right now, according to verse 13. Now link that up with verse 14. How are those enemies being brought under the feet of Jesus? Answer, angels, myriads, the word myriads is used in chapter 12, verse 22. Myriads, that's tens and tens and tens of thousands. Myriads of them are being dispatched into the world to serve the likes of you. Why? So that you will inherit your salvation. That is, angels are blocking enemies from destroying you, and they are, they are putting in your way and in your mind, ennobling, encouraging, faith-building inclinations and thoughts, so that you will make it to your inheritance. So that two things are happening here. And I'm, this is my conclusion. One, enemies are being subdued. And two, you are being helped and brought on to salvation. Because it's enemies. Satan wants you done. He wants you down. He wants your faith down. He wants your family down. He wants your morals down. He wants everything about you destroyed. And God has a counterattack on that in verse 14. They are sent forth to serve those who are to inherit salvation. You will inherit salvation, but it ain't no done deal without angels, according to verse 14, is it? They serve you on the way to salvation so that the ugly intentions and designs of the evil one do not triumph in your life. Oh, how thankful. We should be for them. Have you ever asked the question, when you read a chapter like this and you say, wow, there must be some real confusion. Just like today, there's terrible confusion in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They think Jesus is a mere angel. It's a deadly doctrine. So why did he create angels? What's the point of angels? And this chapter answers with two clear statements. One is in verse 6. One is in verse 14. And there are only two. He created angels, number one, to worship Jesus. And he created angels, number two, to serve you. And now if you'll forgive me some familiar language because I am in a rut. He created angels 
so that Christ would be glorified and you would be satisfied. Sound familiar? It's just there. It's everywhere in the Bible. He created angels to magnify His Son and to satisfy His people in the Son. To bring you to the fullness of your salvation in the Son. So I want you to go out of here with this truth ringing in your ears that there is help in the universe. I'm heading for Nairobi, Kenya at 4 o'clock this afternoon. I'll land in Heathrow, move over to Gatwick, get on another plane. You know what? There's angels in England. There's angels hovering over the Atlantic Ocean. There's angels over the Mediterranean. There's angels over all of Sahara, Africa. There's angels in Nairobi. I'm, I'm walking among friends everywhere I go. They're sent to serve you. They're sent to serve me. There are millions and millions of them. Enough to meet every need. Be encouraged today that God means to do two things. He means to exalt His Son and serve His people. That's my theology in a nutshell because I just see it everywhere in the Bible. He means verse 6, they exist to worship Christ. And verse 14, they exist to serve Christians. So go out of here this morning with a tremendous sense of assurance.